Juarez, just a few hours away and a world apart. The metropolitan area of Juarez is home to over two million people. As one of Mexico's border cities, Juarez has grown tremendously since the enactment of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Much of this is due to large corporations building factories in and around the city of Juarez. As a result, people from all over Mexico come with dreams of a better life for their families. Unfortunately, their dreams are seldom realized. Each month, Global Adventures, the mission's arm of Calvary of Albuquerque, sponsors a weekend outreach to Juarez, and you can be a part. On Friday, November 14th, the team will depart from Calvary for a weekend missions trip that will provide God's love to the people of Mexico in a real and tangible way. This ministry that you see here, um, we're building a house for, for a very poor couple. The goal of this is to build a, a house in like seven or eight months. And uh, during that time, we want uh, the church to, to build a relationship with these people and uh, start evangelizing them. And when the group comes, they do a little bit of work at a time. And with this, uh, it's making a big impact because people go to church and we build a relationship with them. Each team has the opportunity to assist in construction projects, as well as one-on-one -on -one evangelism with the people of Juarez. Team members experience the bond of fellowship as they work and worship together. The groups that come, they are praying for the family here that they're going to come and work with. The good thing of this is that we are not just telling them about Jesus, but we're showing them Jesus' love. And this makes a huge impact in the family here. Uh, a lot of ministries choose uh, Christian families to build houses for, but we choose non-Christians, so we have a chance to evangelize them. One weekend can make an impact for all eternity. If you'd like to experience hands-on missions in a third world country, consider the next Global Adventures trip to Juarez. Applications are available at the Connection Center. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope you're having a real good week. Speaking of missions, my name is Neil Ortiz. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the missions pastor here at Calvary. And I have the privilege tonight of interviewing my predecessor, uh, Matthew Allison, who was the missions pastor here since 1994, all the way up until last year. Would you please give Matthew a warm welcome? Well, for those of you who haven't heard from Matthew in a while, Matthew, how are you doing and how's your family doing? Very busy. Since I've left, I've been traveling around the country, working with churches, helping them establish or strengthen their existing missions ministries, and my plate's full. And my family's doing well. My beautiful wife is right there. <laughs> Renee, would you please stand up? No? Come on. Okay. Oh, and I've got three incredible kids, and it's a blast. Excellent. Well, Matthew, as we watched the video, we saw one way in which God is using the church to get his kingdom established throughout the world and also to get the gospel out. What are some ways that you know and are aware of currently that God's using the church to get the gospel message out? More so than ways that he's using the church, I want to focus in on what he's doing in the church. Mm. For a long time, the way that the church did missions was primarily through 
what we call church agency. There was these agencies that have grown up in the last 150 years or so, and they specialized in missions, and, and they've been incredibly powerful. God has used them in great ways. But unfortunately, because they were apart from the local assembly many times, the Great Commission wasn't alive and well in the culture of the local church. So you did missions by sending your money and your people away. And what I'm experiencing is wherever I go, I talk to churches and they're saying, sending a check doesn't cut it anymore. Um, We want to participate in this. And they're thinking of the Great Commissions uh, being fulfilled no longer in terms of just reaching the lost, but are we a church that is truly pleasing to the Lord? So a lot of churches have a newfound desire to do missions where before they were happy to just send off money. And what are some of the ways that they're able to exercise that newfound desire? One of the things we do as an organization, which you'll talk about in a minute, no doubt I'm getting ahead of myself, (laughs) but we help those local churches that want to launch a missions ministry see the value of a strategy. You know, this isn't going to happen accidentally. And so thinking through it and praying through it, and as their strategy starts to be articulated, what they recognize is we need partners. This vision to reach the nations is bigger than any one church. And so what we do is we help them find the right resources and the right relationships. For example, what really started here with the Guaymi has now been passed on to other churches. As you know, we adopted the Guaymi people of Panama. About 190,000 have never heard the gospel. Uh, there's about 200,000 total. And we're working with Wycliffe. Wycliffe is providing translation. But we as a church are providing what the church, what Wycliffe can't, which is people, personnel, church planters. And so that model of helping a church partner with Wycliffe and establish their own homegrown approach to missions is what we're helping other churches do. And for some people that might not be familiar with the we that that you're referring to, uh, who exactly is that we? Is it a group of Christians that have gotten together to fulfill this particular ministry of the Lord? Yeah. It's an organization called 1615. It comes from the Gospel of Mark. Go into all the world, preach the good news to all creation. What's really interesting about our ministry is we didn't start off and say, here's our vision, here's our product, and we'll sell it to the church. We really took the pulse of what, was God, of what God was doing in the church, and we asked ourselves the question, how can we join God? What's going on? And as I mentioned, we saw this newfound desire in the church to no longer farm out the Great Commission, but to involve the people and the churches in it. And we discovered also that the agencies aware of this were more than happy to come alongside the church and really give the Great Commission back to the local fellowships. But what we discovered is that they spoke different languages. Hmm. The church agency and the church don't speak the same language. And so what we do is we build bridges of relationship and partnership so that the church wins, they own the Great Commission, and the agency wins because their services and their expertise are being utilized. Now, Matthew, um, a few months back, somebody asked me, what's Matt doing these days? And knowing what I know about the ministry from what you've shared with me, I had this idea that, Matthew, along with the group of people that he's serving with, are standing right in the middle of an intersection. And coming down this road here, you have churches who are so eager to serve the Lord in missions. And over in this other direction are coming ministries, like you had mentioned earlier, that have long existed but need the uh, life of the church in order to really fulfill what God's given them to do. And I see a person like you, Matt, in the ministry that you're now involved with as being the person or the key uh, entity right in the middle connecting the two that be correct yeah i think we've we've tried to describe who we are even internally because it's a difficult thing to describe but really we're divine relationship brokers 
we, we recognize that the Great Commission has been given to the church. One of our values is that the entity God has raised up to complete the Great Commission is called the church. It, it's assemblies like this all over the world. That's who God gave the Great Commission to. And for a long time, as I said, I, I don't know why it happened exactly, but they really forfeited their involvement. And so what we want to do is call them to own it as a personal mandate, as a church, and then we provide the traffic direction and all of those things so that the church gets the resources that it needs. And really you have a win-win situation. Churches are winning because they're no longer forfeiting the Great Commission. Mm. Agencies are winning because they're being funded and their expertise that the church needs is being utilized. And then the field is being affected because the church is sending out missionaries. Mm. Now, you obviously work with a group of people. But, Matthew, what are you doing specifically in your capacity among those people to make this happen? Oh, what am I doing? It's a thrill every day. My particular area of oversight is really working with churches. I travel around the country a lot. And what I do, um, it's manifold, but probably the primary one is filling pulpits. Coming to churches that have said, this is interesting too, is I don't have to sell our vision. God already gave the vision in the Bible. So I just find churches that are resonating with this, this church that has this newfound desire and um, we'll identify them and say, we'd love to help, and I'll come into the church, and I'll cast a vision to that congregation, to that leadership team of the local church's proper role, um, a biblical basis for missions from Genesis to Revelation. The Great Commission is accentuated in every book. And then I also communicate the important role that every believer in a church has in participating in that. And once again, as those things start to gel, what they'll recognize is they need assistance in putting it together. Mm. And so we're, we, we train, we empower, and we equip the church to be the church. We, we've coined a phrase that we tell our story by telling someone else's. And as I've gone around the country and shared what we're doing, what I'm really doing is sharing success stories of local churches that are seeing effective Great Commission works. And we here at Calvary have been part of one of those stories with the Guaymi What's perhaps more uh, a more recent example of a church getting very excited about their ability to fulfill the Great Commission? Calvary Chapel Grass Valley comes to mind, and I think it's a, a good one to share with you because really this fellowship's example with the Guaymi was the impetus. It was the thing that created the desire in them to actually do something similar. We went to Grass Valley. I had a relationship with the senior pastor. I discovered that he felt they were really missing it. They really weren't embracing the Great Commission as they should. I talked to him about what was going on here, shared it as an example, went into his pulpit, and all I did was talk about how precious the Bible was. Hmm. I didn't wave a missions banner. I just talked about how much we love the Word and what is it that makes Calvary so great. And obviously, it's the teaching of the Word. And then I presented a situation of which is true. There's people groups that don't have it. You know, Here's John 3.16 in the language of the uh, fra-fra people. And I shared that with them, and they, the congregation just resonated. And so they've adopted the Fra Fra people, and like this church, every ministry at Calvary Chapel Grass Valley is participating. The women have f- filled a role. The children are giving of their tithes and offerings. The high school team is doing annual short-term mission trips. And the fellowship, the, they're sending out their own pastors to train and equip Fra Fra pastors. And that's some fruit that's going to be credited to our account in heaven because God used what's happening here with the Guaymi of Panama to bring them to their own adoption. Mm. I'll tell you what, Matthew, thank you for being here tonight. And there's many people in this uh, sanctuary here, especially uh, many young adults who have greatly been impacted by the ministry that God's done in you and through you here at Calvary. What I'd like to do before we continue is lead 
all of us in prayer for Matthew and for the ministry that God has him fulfilling currently. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the richness of your mercy and the splendor of your grace, Lord, which is on display in Matthew's life and in the life of the ministry at 1615. Lord, we ask that you would continue to give your provision of wisdom, of guidance, of discernment, and of enthusiasm and zeal to this ministry so that they can effectively transfer your heart for the world to the many churches around the world, Lord. So God, once again, please preserve this man, bless this man, and I ask that the relationship between he and his family would continue to grow ever deeper as their ministry expands. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good evening. There's a nice little pulpit clock right here to keep me on track. One time I was at a church and there was a note on the pulpit and it said 9.30 to like 10.20-ish. And I said, you never put ish when you have a preacher in the pulpit because he will fully take advantage of the ish. But I've been given pretty strict boundaries tonight, so I won't keep you too late. Well, I want to start off tonight by telling you that the gospel is more real to me and it's fresher to me than it ever has been before in my life. After walking with Christ for about 10 years, I just feel like I'm barely beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how great God is. And what I'm going to share tonight has a lot to do with that new awareness and understanding that's building in my life. An awareness of just how immense and how indescribable our Savior is. What I'm going to share tonight, I think initially it might shock you, and not because I'm trying to shock you, but I think it will. But as the Holy Spirit moves over the Word, my hope is that your shock turns to wonder. Let's just stop and ask God to be present with us tonight. We know that He is, but let's just acknowledge that. Lord, You said in Your Word that we're two or three would gather in your name, you would be in their midst. And you're omniscient, you're omnipresent, you're everywhere already, you know all things, and you're everywhere at once. And yet when believers gather, you're there in a special and a tangible way. Lord, we need to see you tonight. It's very possible to miss you amidst the wonders of your word, and, and that would be so bad. I pray that as your word is given out tonight, that we would see you as you really are. Lord, fill me with your spirit and give me your power and fill everyone who's listening, Lord, so that they hear your voice clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight I want to tell you, quit trying to serve God. That's the name of the message. And Dave Rao the associate pastor here said, I hope Matt hasn't gone heretical on us. What if you really did a message about quit trying to serve God? That's not the case. I'm trying to get your attention. I want to start with a clip from a song from a group that you know pretty well, probably, Tree 63. And as you hear the lyrics that are being played, I want you to think about if there's anything unusual in the lyrics that you note or hear. They're going to go ahead and play that right now. It's not a question of words. 
probably didn't understand a thing they said. (laughs) He said, it's not a question of what you can do for me, God. It's a question of what I can do for you. What can I do for you, God? Does God actually need us to do anything for him? That's a good question. I have to give a disclaimer. I've got nothing against Tree 63. In fact, I've often been blessed by their worship on many occasions. And I know what they're trying to say. They're saying, the gospel's not about you. The gospel's about Jesus, right? It's not a question of what you can do for me, God, but what can I do for you? But when you put the gospel in those terms of, God, what can I do for you? Sometimes you misrepresent God. You run the risk of giving a gospel that will be misunderstood. God is not needy. He is not a charity case. He's not broke. He doesn't need to borrow your dollar or mine. And ultimately speaking, He doesn't need us to do anything for Him. And that may shock you, but it's true. Jonathan Edwards In his book, The End for Which God Created the World, wrote this, The notion of God creating the world in order to receive anything from the creature is not only contrary to the nature of God, but inconsistent with the notion of creation, which implies a being receiving its existence and all that belongs to it out of nothing. If the creature receives its all from God entirely and perfectly, How is it possible that it should have anything to add to God to make him in any respect more than he was before? And he asks a question here. And so the creator become dependent on the creature? I know there's a lot of words there. Let me put it in terms we can all understand, including myself. I had to read it about five times to grasp it. If God needs us to do for him, then God is dependent upon us. God has no need of us. And if he did depend on you and me, well, I know me, don't know all of you, but we'd be in some pretty serious trouble. And we may not, we may not put it in these terms exactly, but many believers' lives reflect that they think God is needful of their service, needful of something that they can do for him. In fact, I believe that this distorted view of God being needy has been unfortunately prevalent in many missions appeals. One of the reasons I've discovered people are so turned off by missions is because they think it's another recruitment project for God's labor force. God's broke again. God needs your help again. And if you don't give, the world will never be one. And God's represented as needy, needful of what we can give him. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorites. He says, we commonly misrepresent God as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father, hurrying about, seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. Too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. He says, we represent God as this guy wandering around upstairs, pulling out his hair, saying, how on earth will I ever get this job done without the help of my creatures? I have to admit that when I first got involved in ministry, because of an overinflated ego and because of many appeals that I had heard, I thought God needed me. 
I had heard things like this. See if you can relate to hearing this. God is counting on you. How many of you have heard that before? At least half of you. God is counting on you. And still I find myself believing this insidious life from time to time. And it creeps up on me very sneakily. See if some of you can relate to this. Here's a story of my own life. I'm doing way too much. Way too much. And not only am I burning the candle at both ends, but I'm burning it in the strength of the flesh instead of in the power of the Spirit. And I'm depending on myself and my resources and my experience and my intellect and I'm beginning to get cranky and irritable. And I think that I'm doing God some kind of a favor because of all the sacrifices that I'm making. Anyone relate to that? At this point, my service has become sinful. Because what I'm doing is taking myself way too seriously. And although I may not say it with my lips, do you know what my actions are saying? God needs me. The ministry needs me. If I don't get involved, it won't be successful. How can I possibly take a rest and a Sabbath? If I do that, things will not work out. And in the process of serving God, I end up neglecting my family, the people around me, and worst of all, I neglect God himself. And in this attempt to serve him, I get distracted and Martha-like, scurrying around. I'm supposed to be his son. I'm supposed to be a reflection of the care that he gives, and yet I'm fretful and I'm nervous and I'm busy and I'm anxious. And by acting that way, I make God out to be that way. And those of us who are actively involved in ministry seem to be particularly vulnerable to the fallacy that God needs us. I know this is going to hurt us, but I have to say it. It's going to topple our self-importance and our self-sufficiency. But listen to what Paul said in Acts 17, verse 25. You can... Oh, there it is right there. Nor is he worshipped with men, men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. If God already owns everything as, and is himself perfectly complete, we have to ask ourselves the question, what could we possibly do for God? What could you do for God? Here's the mega point of tonight's message, the mega theme, the thing I hope you take home with you. We only truly serve God when we realize He's the kind of God whose greatest delight comes not from putting demands upon us, but His greatest delight comes in meeting our deepest needs. You only truly serve God when you understand His greatest delight does not come from putting demands upon you, from making you religious. His greatest delight comes from meeting your deepest needs. Isn't this what makes God so different than the gods of religion? The lousy gods that must be appeased? I've been to India. I've been to Thailand. I've spent time in animistic tribes. And I'll tell you, they have to bring their gods plates of goodies or else. 
Their gods are needy and deficient. And if you don't appease their anger, look out. But not our God. The God I read about in this Bible is exhaustless in his desire to satisfy us with all that he is for us in Jesus, not the other way around. Our God is exhaustless in his desire to satisfy us with all that he is for us in his son, Jesus Christ, not the other way around. And yet, how many times do we exhaust ourselves trying to make up for what we think are God's deficiencies? As parents, as workers, we act as if the world will stop if we take a break. Obviously, I don't want you to quit trying to serve God. But what I want to say tonight is this. You will serve Him best. You will magnify Him most, not for striving to make up for what we mistakenly think He lacks. You will magnify Him most and serve Him best when you come to Him humbly and receive from His graciousness and goodness what you so desperately need. That's how you serve God in a way that magnifies His worth. If we're going to be effective in ministry and even in life, we have to stop seeing service as approaching God with hands full of stuff. Because the only thing we have to give Him is our hunger, our thirst. And contrary to what we might initially think, in doing so, we'll be putting Jesus and ourselves at the center of the gospel. I know because of our our self-focus, when you hear this, you're going, that doesn't make sense to me. But consider it like this. When you approach God empty-handed, do you know what you're saying? God, you are not deficient, but I sure am. God, you are not needy, but I sure am. In fact, if I don't receive from you, I'll never be able to cope with life and function. Without you, I can do nothing at all. Do you see it? You bring to him your hunger and your thirst, and you honor him. Consider what Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 42 through 45. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and they exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant. Whoever wants to become first must become slave of all. Here's the part I want you to focus on. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve. And to give himself as a ransom for many. Contrary to what you've heard over the years, Jesus did not come to recruit your service. He came to give you his. He came to give you his Consider this, all that you've received from God, your life, your breath, your gifts, your salvation, even your very movements and your being, as Paul said in Acts 17, are all gifts of divine mercy. I mean, we breathe borrowed air. That's how desperate and dependent we are. A disclaimer here before we get into the main text here. If you're one of those people that wants to remain a together type of person... If you want to remain independent, you're not going to like this truth about God not being served by human hands. Or or if you think you can bargain with God for His favor or service, you won't like this truth. But if you humble yourselves 
by admitting that you are desperate beyond telling, that he has what you need and you are powerless apart from him, I believe you will celebrate the truth that God cannot be served by human hands. And so with that long intro, because I don't want you to misunderstand this when I say quit trying to serve God, now that I've told you what I really mean, let's jump into our main text in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Quit trying to serve God, number one, because he already owns everything. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, because the temple is not for man but for the Lord God. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might gold for the things to be made of gold, silver for the things of silver, bronze for the things of bronze, iron for the things of iron, wood for the things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house." my own special treasure of gold and silver. He goes on to give these descriptions of of massive quantities. And then he asks a question at the end of verse 5. Who of you in Israel is also willing to consecrate yourself and give to God? Verse 6. Then the leaders of the father's houses, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, with the officers over the king's work, offered willingly... They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents. I'm not going to read it. Another long description of abundance of gold and silver and bronze. Go to verse 9. Then the people rejoiced for they had offered willingly because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord and King David rejoiced greatly. Now in verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Let's chew on that. Why should you quit trying to serve God? Because he already owns everything. And here in this passage, David undertakes what might have been one of the largest building projects in history. As you know, he will not assemble the temple. That will be given to his son Solomon. But because Solomon's young and experienced, David gives him a hand and collects the resources needed to construct the temple. Look at the language in verses 1 through 9. I have provided my resources, he says. They gave towards the work. The people rejoiced at the willing response of the leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly. I gave. The people gave. And with just a human eye, it looks like David and the Israelites are to be patted on the back for giving so generously. But if you look just a little bit deeper, you see something altogether different. Now make no mistake, these people gave. They sacrificed. They did so, as the text says, with great joy and freely. But what do you see when you magnify this? A great, powerful, wealthy God overflowing in abundance to his people. Look at verse 10. David doesn't bless the people. Who does he bless? 
You can answer me. He blesses the Lord. Look at verse 11. He states that everything in heaven and on earth belong to you. God, everything in heaven, everything on earth, it's yours. This is why giving and serving are all about God. It's because He already owns everything. He owns your life. He owns your clothing. He owns your cars. He owns your house. You name it, God owns it. And all that we have, God has graciously given to us to use for His purposes and to enjoy for His glory. Whatever it is, money, children, even our very lives, God owns those things. Verse 12, he says, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Once more, if you just looked with the human eye, it would seem that the resources and the finances and even the sweat equity to build the temple came from the people. But David says, all riches come from you. All strength comes from you. You give the power for man to become great. Here's the point. Whatever they gave, they first got. Whatever they gave to God for His purposes, they first received it. Whatever it is, it is traceable back to God. You see, you can't give God what He's lacking because He lacks nothing. He owns everything. And this is very important for us to understand. For me to understand, because I am very self-centered, self-focused. We have a tendency to think that we do God a favor when we serve Him. And when we do, we belittle Him. Whether it's tithes, offerings, resources, if you think you're giving God a lift, you misrepresent Him. You make Him out to be depleted and yourself out to be indispensable. This is great news here. We do not sustain God or uphold His purposes on earth with our energy. We do not sustain God or uphold His purposes on earth with our energy. Rather, we are sustained and strengthened by His. Early on in ministry, I had a tendency to cajole people into service. See, I had a background in sales, and I'm pretty persuasive. And I could get them to sign up. I'd talk about the need and talk about what would happen if they didn't get involved, those type of things. We sure need you. What I did, in essence, was uh, figuratively, I was hanging out a sign in the church. I didn't really do this, but figuratively speaking, that said this, help wanted... Help needed. What a misrepresentation of Jesus. Help out poor little Jesus. He needs you. I've discovered over the years, and my stress has definitely gone down, and my wife can attest to this. If you're going to hang out those figurative signs, you need to have signs that say opportunities available. Adventure awaits. They're much more fitting for the Lord of hosts who owns everything, don't you think? Opportunities await. Adventure available. God's cause in the nations is going to prevail. His purpose to fill heaven with worshipers from every ethnic group on planet Earth. That's what God is up to. The great end of history 
is Jesus Christ being worshipped and adored by countless worshippers from all nations. That is where everything is headed. And it's going to happen. Nothing can stop it. He will get the job done voluntarily or involuntarily. Can you imagine if God depended on us to do His work? It'd be pretty scary. So quit trying to serve God because you don't have anything He needs. He already owns it all. Look at verses 14 through 20. Second reason, because we cannot give to God what we have not received. This is my favorite part. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you. And of your own we have given you, for we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things And now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. I'm going to stop there. I've already mentioned this a bit, but in verses 14 through 18, this truth that you cannot give what you have not received becomes even more stunning. I love verse 14. David says, who am I and who are my people? Do you know what's going on here? David is in a state of disbelief. He's saying, God, who am I that I should be involved in something so wonderful? I can't believe that I'm a part of this. I don't deserve this. God, I do not deserve your enabling to do this. I do not deserve the resources you've given me that have helped me to accomplish this. He's saying, God, who are we that we should receive your wealth? That we should receive this desire to do this? We are sinners. We don't deserve this blessing. We deserve judgment. That's what he's saying. Who am I? And who are my people that we're a part of the greatest work in the universe, bringing glory to God? I've had this experience a few times on the mission field, and I have a total sense of amazement. Once was on a jungle mountain in Panama, reaching out to an indigenous group of people called the Guaymi, which this fellowship has adopted. Of course you know the Guaymi. And I was up there and I thought, God, who am I? Who am I that you have given me the ability and the opportunity and the resources that I could be sharing your gospel with this people? And knowing this passage well, I pray often just that. Who am I? I want to be around people who think like David, who are awestruck and stunned that God would give to them that they might give back to him for his purposes of reaching all nations with the gospel. Perhaps the most instructive thing David says comes next in verse 14. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. All things come from you. And of your own God we've given you. He doesn't say to your hand as if it originated with man and ended up with God, right? He says, from your hand. Why? Because once again, whatever they gave, they first received 
from God's hands. It's all yours, God. All this treasure, gold, silver, sweat equity, desire, it's all traceable back to you. And if you're not floored by all of this like I am, look at verses 18 through 20. I'm going to read this now. O Lord God of Abram, Abraham, excuse me, Isaac and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart towards you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and King. What's going on here? Well, David takes it one step further. God, the resources to build your temple came from you. The sweat equity, the strength came from you. But look what he says. Keep this intent in the hearts of your people. Even the desire itself to give to God originated with him. It's that John 15 principle, you did not choose me, but I chose you. God was stirring the hearts of his people to participate in something they didn't deserve to participate in. He was calling poor and desperate people to be a part of something that was bigger than themselves. Now make no mistake here, the people did the giving. It says that they gave freely and with joy, just as we should. The people made decisions, real decisions. They were not robots. They were exercising their will, no doubt. They made a difference, a real difference. Perhaps without their gifts, the temple would not have been built. But mysteriously, in a way that we can't understand, when you zoom in with a spiritual microscope, what, what you see here behind the scenes, behind the choices, is the gracious, enabling hand of an amazing, all-sufficient, all-supplying God. Do you see it? God, you not only gave the stuff that we need to build it, but you awoke within our heart a desire to love you, to do right. So keep this intent, the intent that you gave to me, give it also to my son, to my people. What does all this mean? Well, it means that our God is incomparable and he's immeasurable. He's a God of infinite wealth. He's a God of infinite power. He does not stand in need of my gifts or yours as if he were poor and helpless. Just to sum this up into a point that you can put in your pocket and take with you. My God is always the giver and I'm always the getter. My God is always the giver. And because of his grace, I am always the getter. Because he's all sufficient, all powerful, and he owns everything. Turn with me to Psalm 50, verses 12 through 15. If I could have pulled out one verse that it would have described everything I've said so far in the Bible, it would be this one. In fact, we could have skipped all the rest and just gone here, but it's fun to put it all together. This verse embodies the entire message that I just shared. Psalm 50. Give me a minute, I'll get there. Oh, it's on my screen again. 
I'm not used to this. Starting in verse 12. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that it, and all its fullness will eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Let's pull it apart a little bit. He says, if I were hungry, you wouldn't know about it. In other words, if I had a need, I, you wouldn't know about it. And, and besides the fact, that's a fallacy. And he says it right here. The world's mine. What he's saying is, listen, I'm not hungry. The world belongs to me. I made it. All that is in it. And then he goes on to say, call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you. And you will glorify or honor me. He says, you're the one that's hungry. And the way that you magnify me, the way that you show the world that I'm a fountain that can meet the thirst in their heart, is you let me deliver you. You see, God demonstrates His preciousness, His value, by meeting the ache of our soul. I'm not hungry. I own the world. You want to worship me? Then let me satisfy your heart. Receive from me all that I am in my Son, is what he is saying here. What an amazing truth. God glorifies himself by serving and satisfying us with Jesus. That's how he demonstrates his value. That's how he is glorified. He says it right here. I'll deliver you and that's how I'll be honored. That's how I'll be magnified. I know over the years you've heard some altar calls and things that made God out to be a recruiter of your service. But the more and more I grow in my walk, I, I just see how wrong that is and how it misrepresents Him. Being a Christian is really an admission of complete and total weakness. Serving God is not revving up your engine and, and trying to give God a boost. Trying to make up for those needs that you think He has. Serving God is bending down and drinking from the river of His pleasures. Satisfying the thirst of your soul. The challenge before us as believers as we seek to serve God is this. Lay aside our preconceived ideas about Him and how to serve Him. And look into the Word and say, God, what are you saying about yourself? What are you saying about what it means to properly serve you? Listen to what he says in Romans 11, 35 and 36, if you want to know how to glorify him and serve him. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We often have a a self-esteeming response to grace, don't we? Instead of just receiving 
and realizing that honors him. We have a self-esteeming response and we try and pay God back. And we live a life of penance when he's calling us to a life of relationship, not a life of religion. I found a little story in a book that I read recently that takes these concepts and it makes a beautiful word picture that I hope sticks with you. The writer says this, God has no needs that I or anyone else could ever be required to satisfy. God has no deficiencies that I might be required to supply. He is complete in himself. He is overflowing with happiness in the fellowship of the Trinity. The upshot of this is that God is a mountain spring, not a watering trough. A mountain spring is self-replenishing. It constantly overflows and supplies others. But a watering trough needs to be filled with a pump or bucket brigade. So if you want to glorify the worth of a watering trough, you work hard to keep it full and useful. But if you want to glorify the worth of a spring, you do it by getting down on your hands and knees and drinking to your heart satisfaction until you have the refreshment and strength to go back down in the valley and tell people what you found. You do not glorify a mountain spring by dutifully hauling water up the path from the river below and dumping it into the spring. What we have seen is that God is like a mountain spring, not a watering trough. And since that is the way God is, we are not surprised to learn from Scripture. And our faith is strengthened to hold fast that the way to please God is to come to Him to get and not to give, to drink and not to water. When the Holy Spirit started to reveal these truths to me, my whole perspective on worship completely shifted. Because I can't tell you how many times where I thought I had to conjure some emotion or some feeling up. Now I just go, I've got nothing. God, I have nothing to give you today. And he says, perfect. That's the way that you're going to worship me. That's how you're going to serve me. And so now I'm freed up to come into service like the loser that I am. I don't have to fix myself up. I just have to admit that he's what I need and that without him, my thirst will remain. Aren't you glad that God is attracted to weakness? He is attracted to weakness. Skip talks about it all the time. He did not choose the wise things of this world. But he chose the foolish things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize that they are poverty-stricken in their souls. A few closing thoughts, because I don't want to be misinterpreted. I believe that the call to get the gospel out to the ends of the earth is greater today than it ever has been before. And the urgency is greater. And that's what I spend my life doing, my wife and I. That's what we do. We, we call the church to own this privilege, to be a part of getting the gospel out. So I don't want you to think that what I said tonight was intended to make you think that God does his work independent of his kids. I didn't say that. Let me repeat it again. God has chosen to do His kids to do His work to bring Him glory. Matthew 11, verse 12. 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. God advances His kingdom through His forceful servants. So I'm not saying, once again, that you need to go on cruise control. The point I want to be understood is this. He is not dependent upon you. He does use you graciously, but He is not dependent upon you either. Once more, He won't do His work independent of His own, but He is not dependent on you either. And what happens in God's economy when you don't understand that properly, He passes you up and He finds that desperate, poor, thirsty soul that He can use to the fullest. What I want to convey as we begin to wrap this up, is that if we want to do great exploits in the service of God, if we want to see a move of God in this generation, then we have to stop coming to Him with stuff. We have to come to Him with desperation. Because you cannot give what you have not received. David had this in mind when he compared his longing for God with the imagery of a deer in a desert land. Turn with me to Psalm 42. Verse 1. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. What's the focus in this picture? What's the focal point? Is it the deer? not how I read it. The focal point in this picture is the stream. The focus is on the cool, refreshing, replenishing properties of the stream. What does the deer bring to the stream? A panting heart. That's it. He brings the one thing he has desperation and thirst. This is how we must come to God if we want to serve Him and worship Him. Three ways to take this message with you. Number one, be a thirsty deer and go to the streams often. Drink deep. As an admission of your weakness, be with God in the Word long and often. Don't dutifully approach your quiet time as if if I do this, God will bless me today. Don't we have that mentality so often? Come on. Be honest with me. Let me see some hands there. God, i got to do this so that I can receive your blessing and reward today. We're so selfishly wired. Man, let this message just tear that out of you. God, I come to you as an admission of weakness. I come to you with my thirst. Sit and soak In the scriptures. Number two, be the bankrupt beggar and let God be the generous provider of your soul. Probably the same thing. But what I have in mind here is this. In your worship and even in your your corporate worship, don't go to give of yourself because when you do, what you're saying is, I'm at the center. Is there real giving that happens in the body of Christ? Unquestionably. We talked about it tonight. They gave. They really gave. But when you see yourself as the bankrupt beggar, you stop this mentality of bringing God a plate of goodies 
I'm going to church to do my duty. No, you go to church and you say, I've got nothing to offer. And God will glorify Himself by satisfying your thirst. And number three, as an outgrowth of having received all that God is for you in His Son, serve Him by telling others who quenched your thirst. Here's where that desperation that I had got satisfied. My hunger and my thirst were met in Jesus Christ. That is how you will serve Him best. Magnify Him most. Perhaps one of the most exhilarating thoughts in the whole world, at least to me, is that in the end, if we've been faithful to give away what God first gave to us, according to Scripture, in heaven, He will reward us. That's terrible math. He gives to you what you don't deserve. Desire to know Him. A heart to know Him. He gives you resources. He gives you opportunities. And if you've been faithful along the way to receive from Him, which honors Him, because what it says is, look how great my God is. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, I can see. And then you just continue to give that to others. When you get to heaven, He rewards you for what you gave away. He's always the giver and we're always the getters. Wearsby puts it like this, What grace that God not only gives us work to do and the ability to do it, but He then rewards us for what He enabled us to accomplish. That just stir you up tonight. What grace... No wonder David said, who am I that I have this desire, this intent inside? Who am I that I've been given these things so that I can bring glory to your name? I know me. I know me. God, I can't believe this. I can't believe I'm a Christian. You're all familiar with JFK's most famous quote. I won't even try to do the impersonation. Of course, Skip is the impersonator that I would embarrass myself. What does he say? Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for, for your country. And in the realm of social service, it's a great thing. It's noble. It, it, it stirs me up. But we've made that God saying, and it misrepresents him. He doesn't stand over a group of poor and helpless and needy people who are broken by sin and ravaged by the poison of evil in this world and say, what have you got for me? He stands over broken, desperate people, poor, sick, needy souls, and he says, what can I do for you? Let me meet the ache of your heart. And contrary to how you're wired, that's precisely how you will honor me and worship me and serve me. Because you see, when I satisfy you, I'm going to make you into a billboard, an advertisement for what the gospel can do in someone's soul. That is how you honor him best. You receive from him all that he is for you.
and His Son. We're going to do another worship song. And before we do that, I just want to challenge you right now. Maybe your, your ideas about service have been challenged and worship have been challenged. It is very freeing when this truth starts to sit in your heart because you come just as you are. And I know there's many of you who have gone through a lot of issues in your life. you got a lot of stuff going on. And there's a disconnect between you and God. The great news about this truth is if all you have is the awareness that you're broken and you're thirsty, He's going to be so pleased tonight to refresh you. Don't have to muster anything up. You come just as you are. You see, He instills fear of Himself and love of Himself, not by condemning your sin, but by forgiving it. That's how He creates this holy, joyful fear of Him. Takes away your sin. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for being the fountain, the overflowing fountain. And Lord, we want to serve You in a way that honors You and magnifies You. We want to worship You in a way that shows the world around us that You alone can meet the ache of our heart. And so, Lord, we bring to you tonight the one thing that we have to offer and thank you that it's the one thing you're pleased to get. And that's a panting heart. Oh, God, make us hungry and thirsty for you.